I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Ryan, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, investigative journalist Ollie Winston, co-author of The Riders Come Out at Night, Brutality, Corruption, and Cover-Up in Oakland, returns to discuss recent news that the NYPD has been using drone surveillance technology against pro-Palestinian activists. We'll also be discussing recent reporting by the publication New York Focus on the relationship between the state of New York and the occupation in the Palestinian West Bank. All that more on this edition of Parallax Views, so let's get right to it with Ollie Winston. Welcome back to Parallax News, a guest that I always enjoy speaking to. He's done a lot of independent journalism on issues related to the NYPD, uh, surveillance technology, the rest. Uh, We've had him on to talk about the NSO group and Pegasus spyware before. Uh, And he's the author of the book, co-author, I should say, of The Riders Come Out at Night, Brutality, Corruption, and Cover-Up in Oakland with Darwin Bondgram. How are you doing? Ollie Winston. I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for having me back. 
So, Ollie, we have a lot to talk about uh, involving the state of New York and uh, the current situation uh, in Israel-Palestine, uh, mm-hmm. the bombing of Gaza, etc., and, of course, the occupation of the West Bank. But the first thing I want to talk to you about was uh, this report that I saw from the New York Post. NYPD used drones for arrests in pro-Palestine protests in yep. New York City. Uh, I know you had some thoughts on this, if you want to share. Sure. So I actually covered the NYPD's initial purchase, the public unveiling of their drone purchase, which they did, of course, with no oversight, as they do with all their surveillance technology, since they can, per New York City law, uh, withhold that information, those contracts from public view. This is part of the big um, expansion in authority they were given after September 11th, uh, twenty one. 22 years ago, and no one's thought that maybe we should have a little bit of a rollback now. Um, They purchased 14 drones in 2018 and basically did this unilaterally and said, hey, we're doing this, by the way. Um, Hope you're okay with it, and announced it in December. The drones are all made by DJI, a Chinese um, drone manufacturer that has been flagged by multiple agencies, including the Department of Homeland Security, as a potential security risk for data infiltration back to China. We can come back to that topic and the uh, extensive use of Chinese-made drones by American law enforcement later on. That's another component of this. So in the year since, you know, they did claim at first, oh, we'll use this for emergency situations, search and rescue, so forth, and uh, we might use it for protests. So shocker, um, the NYPD loves to roll out surveillance technology when it comes to monitoring and abusing First Amendment um, activity. They've been under a federal court's oversight since, I don't know, 1970-something. The consent decree is almost twice as old as I am. Um, that's the Hanshu consent decree for um, their basically their, spy, their old Red Squad, the um, Bureau of Special um, Services, BOSS, um, got dinged for, uh, for spying on the Socialist Workers' Party in the 1970s. Um, they have been, of course, using these drones to monitor marches, demonstrations, um, Labor Day cookouts um, in black neighborhoods. They did that this past year. Um, this has been all rolling out the past four years. That's wild, years. Labor Day cookouts. Yeah, well, the thing is, at the end of, at the end of uh, right before Labor Day, um, the weekend of Labor Day, there is a big celebration in Brooklyn called a Juver, which is, um, you know, it's West Indian, it's Carnival, um, which is celebrated in a number of islands in the Caribbean. And um, over the years, you know, people gather overnight and they party throughout the weekend um, up until the big march on Labor Day. And sometimes there's violence, sometimes there's stabbing, shootings, people kind of go wild a little bit. And over the years, um, there's been some high-profile cases, and this year, um, Eric Adams, the current mayor, who is like a kid in a toy shop with surveillance technology, he thinks that this is, you know, he loves shiny gadgets, um, couldn't honestly care less about the law or, um, or privacy, and that's to be expected. He was an NYPD cop for a long time, and then a pretty right-wing state senator and legislator um, in New York State before being elected mayor. Um, he decided that, oh, well, he and his police commissioners decided that they want to roll this. Um, they wanted to use that technology to basically keep tabs on backyard parties and cookouts in Brooklyn. So, you know, 
a predominantly African-American neighborhood was subjected to the same sort of surveillance that we put Afghanistan and Iraq under during um, the globe, during, you know, the forever wars. Um, so, yeah, that's the sort of thing that rolls out. And of course, during the 2020 Black Lives Matters demonstrations, the NYPD did roll out their drones quite a bit. Um, there was a very famous incident, um, I believe in July or August of that year, I think it was August, where an organizer, Derek Ingram, um, was locked in, he was basically, his apartment in Hell's Kitchen, the cops laid siege to it um, to essentially arrest him for a uh, for yelling in a bullhorn um, too loud in a cop's ear that essentially they'd classified as assault. It was a little bit of a surreal experience, but during that arrest, they dropped um, one of these DJI drones basically outside his window and kept it hovering there throughout the day until he agreed to come out um, and submitted to arrest. So they've done this before, but this past weekend, um, well, not this past weekend, or last month when um, there were some marches in Bay Ridge, a very, um, a, a very heavily Arab-American neighborhood in Brooklyn, pro-Palestine marches that did result in clashes with the cops, unsurprisingly. Um, you know, the cops had drones up and over those protests and did affect a number of arrests on footage based on that. So it is a part and parcel of the NYPD's uh, continual expansion of their surveillance authority without any sort of check or balance from a very pliant city council and a mayor who frankly enables this. Could you speak a little bit to your reporting on this back in 2018? So I have a New York Times article that you co-wrote with Ashley Southall up. Uh, it's from December 4th, 2018. New York police say they will deploy 14 drones. Uh, can you talk about your initial reporting on this and the fears that a lot of people, especially libertarians, had uh, about this rollout of drones by the NYPD and uh, how much they seem to have been proven right? Sure. You mean civil libertarians, right? Yeah, civil libertarians, yeah, I think enough. I said, yeah. Fair enough. I mean, it, it, it's a you know catch-all. I just wanted to make certain that that was it. Um, yeah, I mean, Ashley and I had gotten wind of the drone purchase actually quite some time before the um, – not some, we'd gotten wind of it ahead of the NYPD's announcement, and they basically beat us to it. We, we kind of dropped the ball there. But um, I had been working in California at this point. I'd worked there for a decade, and the cops out there had rolled out their drones quite early. So we knew what, what was – I had a good idea what was coming, what the manufacturers were, and so forth. Um, you know, I went out to Fort Totten, um, this NYPD facility out in, on uh, the Long Island Sound, and watched the cops fly these drones around. And one of them had a flare forward looking infrared mounted on it, which the Supreme Court has ruled you do need a warrant to use that in order to see through a wall and see someone. And I did ask the cops, hey, are you gonna use, um, are you gonna make sure you comply with warrants and to use flur? And of course they had blank faces on it. And then I remember asking this, uh, I think it was a deputy inspector or assistant, um, assistant chief, can't remember what it was about, um, Hey, do you have any concerns about uh, the Department of Homeland Security flagging up this particular brand of drone as an espionage threat? Um, and they just had never heard of it, never even thought of this stuff before. It's just boys with toys. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it was clear that they were that they had their use policy. They didn't have a specific use policy for the drones. It was the same use policy that governed all their other surveillance technologies, license plate readers, network surveillance cameras, shot spotter, um, MZ catchers, dirt boxes, the cell phone interception and, uh, and tracking technology that they use. And uh, 
if you know anything about the NYPD, you know that they um, they have their own legal department. They push back very, very vociferously against any attempt to rein them in. Um, since September 11th, they've put a massive. They receive hundreds of millions of dollars, at least a hundred million dollars every year from the federal government for counterterrorism work. They have their own intelligence section. Um, they have quite a large undercover. Uh, they have a very expansive technical assistance unit that uh, that handles all the surveillance technology. Technical Assistance Response Unit, TARU. When I was young at demonstrations, they used to show up with handheld video cameras and record us. Um, I mean, I know I've, I've seen some of the footage that I met, that I was in when I was like 16 or 15 or something like that. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just, this is the way that the country's largest police department operates. They have, they essentially operate as an intelligence agency. They gather information despite court um, court oversight on them on, they gather information in violation of it. That consent decree has had so many holes blown in it down the years that it's effectively useless. And the city council is running scared of them. And they also receive a lot of this surveillance technology through a nonprofit, a police booster called the uh, New York City Police Foundation, a 501c3 organization. Can you talk a little has, bit more about that? Yeah, sure. I've reported on this beforehand um, with Darwin and with, uh, on similar programs in other cities what these organizations do is they take money from private donors like the target corporation or palantir or um i don't know you know real estate firms and they use it to purchase surveillance technology or fund the deployment of detectives overseas and both of which has happened in new york city and uh then that's a quote-unquote gift in kind to the police department and there's no effective oversight and in many cases um the surveillance technology purchased happens to be the product of a donor and the members of those boards wield outsized influence. The current sanitation commissioner of New York, Jessica Tisch, whose family is our real estate barons. They own, um, they've been involved in New York city real estate for quite some time. And one of her mother actually was on the state board of regents for the, um, the public school system. So the, uh, Ms. Tisch was, given her first job in city government at the NYPD because her, two of her uncles sat on the police uh, foundation's board and went to commissioner Ray Kelly years ago and said, Hey, Jesse wants to work, you know, give her a job. And she gets shoehorned in as a uh, deputy commissioner for information technology and made a famous purchase where she bought something like 30,000 windows phones for the police department. Um, and I think we all know what happened to windows phones. They turned out to be uh, one of the greatest lemons ever produced. So yeah, that, that, this is the, like the ways in which these foundations work. So the bottom line is the New York City Police Department, um, in many ways, is a black box. They actually, there was legislation, very kind of moderate or milquetoast legislation passed in 2020 after lingering in the council for three years called the POST Act, Public, Survey, uh, Public Oversight of Surveillance Technology Act that supposedly mandated the department disclose its purchases of surveillance technology, of course, dragged its feet, refused to do so. The bill had no teeth. And now the, um, I believe the, I believe one of the, um, the oversight groups, I think it's, um, stop project. Um, they sued and successfully forced the NYPD to release that contract data. So they're going to have to kick that stuff out into public soon, but I don't know when there's no idea what the timeline is. But by and large, the council has been incredibly loath to um, 
to force the NYPD to even talk about this. They have, the council has subpoena power and the NYPD has skipped three hearings this fall, um, excuse me, since the summer that ostensibly would be about their, what surveillance technologies they have and their use policies. So, you know, people around here have no fucking backbone. I think that's pretty, that's pretty straightforward. And is it um, just a matter of that or is there, are there other reasons for why there's just no oversight or no, I, I would say that in the past, the council has called the police department to oversight. There have been lawsuits filed against the city by the New York city. Um, civil New York civil liberties union, legal aid society, um, center of constitutional rights. They actually filed the lawsuit over um, the stop and frisk policies, but the police department wields a tremendous amount of influence. There are a number of different police unions, uh, they have clout. People are people here are still terrified of taking the police department's authority away. Even though we're, God, we haven't had over a thousand homicides. We haven't had even six hundred homicides since I don't know two thousand nine or two thousand eight. This is in a city of almost nine million now. It is exponentially safer than it was when I was even in high school, let alone in middle school um, when I grew up here, and. By and large, um, a lot of it is the fear, the specter of 9-11 and just the kind of authority that's been handed over to the police department. And also, there are, they do have a lot of allies in media. If a, if a politician does take a run at the police department, the New York Post is guaranteed to attack them. Uh, they're going to get hit by talk radio. They're gonna, probably going to take hits from the local TV stations because they're all compliant. They're all really pliant. Um, New York won through like basically ABC7. Picks eleven, um, you know Joe Scarborough will will go off along with um, what's his name Zygmunt Brzezinski's daughter. They'll uh, Mika Brzezinski, the yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they don't know shit from Shinola, but they will go out there and and shine shoes for um, for Eric Adams and Phil Banks. Oh, by the way, the guy who's effectively running the police department was an unindicted uh, co-conspirator in a bribery case, a federal really? bribery case. Phil Banks, yeah, he um, took money from. Um, I took money and diamonds and trips and um, probably more from a couple of big developers, um, developers who were trying to kind of make nice in the city. And the FBI indicted them and got them to testify against a couple of people. This case was during the de Blasio, Bill de Blasio's mayoralty, and Banks effectively had to resign from the police department. Um, but he, by the way, did take a lot of, he took quite a few trips to Israel with these guys. Um, you know, was plied with pink champagne, shot Uzis on these little shooting ranges, went out on yachts in the middle of the Mediterranean, all that shit. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the police department here is, uh, it's not clean. Let's just put it like that. How would you, so for people that don't live in New York or they, you know, how would you compare like NYPD to other, um, I would say infamous like uh, LAPD, LAPD, or I even okay. I was even thinking of uh, Dallas PD because I used to have Barrett Brown on to give updates okay. on uh, you know Dallas PD corruption. So how does it compare to these other? All right, so if you compare NYPD to Chicago or Los Angeles, right, big cities. Um, first off, New York City cops typically there are about thirty four to thirty six thousand. There used to be forty thousand in the in two thousand two thousand one. They haven't reached that number again. Um, it's split up among, among God dozens of precincts throughout all five boroughs. Um, it's a there's so it's effectively a standing army. Um, they have a massive budget, probably about 
if you total it up with pensions and uh, capital costs, about $10 billion. Um, it's larger than many standing militaries. And, um, you know, they've dropped their standards a lot. Pay is not that high. Um, the cops no longer have to run a mile in under 15 minutes, which you can do walking um, to basically pass through the police academy. Their firearms requalification is pretty rare. Their tactics are... I mean... A few years ago, when I was reporting at the Times, there was a, um, a guy who robbed a cell phone store, and um, these, he came out, and these cops, these detectives, who aren't lying cops, shouldn't have responded to the incident, didn't have bulletproof vests on, they just had their sidearms, they showed up to the scene, and these guys basically formed a circle around, if some formed a semicircle around a corner store, around the corner of a, um, a business where they had glass on both sides, and fired at the suspect and two of the, two of the detectives ended up hitting each other. One of them died. Um, Brian Simonson. And I was a little bit aghast. I was totally aghast at these tactics. Um, there was another friendly fire incident the next year with another detective in a foot chase in the Bronx, but, um, their tactics were, were just, they were, they were suicidal. You know, most of the time you're taught to form a, a, a cone of fire, a V, where the where you're out of the you're out of your colleague's field of fire, and they just were not uh, they did not do anything approaching that. Um, their tactical training is far less than comparable departments in California. Um, I think in terms of and California also has a bit of a higher standard in terms of uh, deploying out. There's more of a military tradition out there. West Coast policing is more, much more militarized. East Coast policing is a civil service job. So it's kind of like you sit there, you know, you go out, you answer calls, you deal with complaints, you do your 20 and then you're out, right? You do 20 years and then you retire on your pension. Um, there's a lot of graft in NYPD, especially narcotics-related graft. There's been quite a few cases made recently of cops either selling fentanyl out of the precinct houses or, you know, sleeping with drug dealers and then warning them about a federal investigation to these guys for, for homicide. There's been, those cases are out of the Bronx. Um, it is a big sprawling department. The lack of oversight means that there are about 10, there's about a 20 year interval between major scandals. Um, there were huge drug related scandals in the 1990s that resu resulted in the Mullen commission. Um, Lots of there was an entire precinct in West Harlem, the 30th precinct that was known as the Dirty 30. Dozens of cops there were indicted for robbing drug dealers and selling their drugs back to them. There was God, um, Frank Serpico in the 1970s uncovered systematic, systematic graft in the police department. That was the result that triggered the Knapp Commission. There was a similar commission formed under Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia that allegedly cleaned up padded graft in the department. It has always been this, – this city is a very – people look at New York and say, oh, it's so advanced. It's the city of the future. No, no, no. It's a very old-fashioned city. Municipal graft is the name of the game. The Democratic Party here, it's a one-party city effectively, and there's a shit ton of graft here in terms of how judges get appointed or get elected in terms of who rises up, where in the council, um, you know, every year up in, uh, there was one point in the early and mid in the mid and late two thousands and 2010s, where I think one or two legislators from either the city council or Albany were being indicted by the state AG or the feds for corruption every year. Um, there's just a lot because there's so much money flying through the city. There's people want to buy influence. Um, 
the police department is obviously a great place to target for influence. And that's what happened with the current deputy mayor for public safety, Phil Banks. Since you mentioned uh, Frank Serpico, you know, I think everyone might, you know, people like my dad were always like, yeah, I saw the movie Serpico with Al Pacino. And I, I'm glad that you mentioned Serpico because I, you know, while you were speaking about all the corruption now, is there like a line of continuity going back that far? Like, like Mm -hmm. what has changed since the seventies? Has it gotten worse? You know, I think that the feds are more active in terms of cracking down on lower level corruption when it hits, when they see it. Um, The commissions over the past few decades have kind of rocked up and exposed some of the patterns of drug policing that happened. Um, You know, the cops have body worn. It's harder now to like bust down a drug dealer and rob them. Most cops have body worn cameras in the city. Um, there might be a couple specialized units that don't, but by and large they do. What you do see, what you will see now is a lot of like overtime related con- corruption, right? Where cops will pad their overtime. Um, they'll, or they'll make arrests that didn't really happen. There was a Manhattan South detective who alleged, who was indicted and the charges were ended up getting dropped on a technicality. He was indicted for, how do I put it? Uh, he was arresting people for buy for um, drug buys that he claimed to make that never happened, and there was plenty of video evidence to support this. So you'll see that event- uh, occasionally. The DAs are a little bit more aggressive about this now, but I don't think there's as much like systematized corruption as there was during Frank Serpico's day. What you do see is a lot more petty. Uh, it's it's not like you don't have to kick up to your commander and pay them and feed them and whatnot. Cops earn a higher salary than they did back then, although they don't. They'll claim that they don't earn enough, but you can earn over a hundred thousand as a cop in New York City within like four or five years, easily if you work the overtime. So then, uh, you mentioned uh, Chinese surveillance technology, and you said you wanted to talk a little bit more about that. Sure. Yeah, I mean the. Um, the interesting thing for allegedly being such an advanced police department that you know makes use of cutting edge technology, uh, the NYPD is, you know, for for better or worse, they've engaged in they've started using five years ago these drones that have been flagged up by Homeland Security as potential security threats, as potential uh, tools for espionage, because DJ has a Chinese-made corp- they're a Chinese corporation. They, they don't know exactly where the data starts and stops. There's actually a bill um, in Congress right now that would ban federal agencies from using Chinese-made drones. Um, and DJI drones and other Chinese manufacturers, they're the most popular models for law enforcement. This is well-known, and it is recognized as, a, as an issue, but there's really been no recognition by local law enforcement that these drones might not, um, you know, they might pose a security threat sooner or later. So then with regards to this uh, New York Post story about uh, drones used for arrests in pro-Palestinian protests, do you want to add anything uh, about that? I also wanted to talk with you, of course, about connections between the occupation in uh, the West Bank and you know, the state of New York, but is there anything else we can add about this story concerning drones? Yeah, I mean, the NYPD's um, practice of hurting people off the street and arresting people for gathering to express their, their First Amendment rights. First off, 
it's been noted down the years, time and time again, that the NYPD has a far more violent and suppressive response to left-wing demonstrations or pro-Palestinian demonstrations or so on than they do towards groups like the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, some Zionists. Um, that's just a matter of fact, and it's been well-documented. It was really on display in 2020 when they allowed... Um, you know, they would crack down on every single Black Lives Matter march, but then they would go out and protect a group of groups of Proud Boys and, you know, other sort of right-wing jackasses that would come into the city to try and provoke a reaction. But earlier this year, a the New York Civil Liberties Union, the Attorney General, reached a settlement agreement over a number of, you know, some of these hundreds of lawsuits that were filed as a result of the, uh, the cop riot during the summer of 2020, um, which made international headlines and human rights watch flagged as an egregious abuse of first amendment and fourth amendment rights and just basic human rights um, to gather and assemble um they reached a settlement agreement which would establish uh restrictions on the nypd's ability to kind of just cattle uh, you know herd protesters off and just yank people off the street whoop them and arrest them for for marching on you know, for marching and gathering and um, exercising their rights. And that deal was actually recently suspended because the police union expressed concerns about it. And of course, the judges here are by and large former prosecutors and they give a tremendous amount of leeway to the police department. And so uh, that settlement is kind of in limbo. And what you saw last month, the police response to that protest in Bay Ridge um, was part and parcel. I mean, that was just standard practice for what they have done as long as I've been around. There's a particular unit, the strategic response group, which is known as the goon squad, riot cops, um, who are specific, who are trained for the dual mission of counterterrorism and protest suppression. Um, that's not a mistake. That's not a bug. That's a feature. That's what the unit was designed to do. Um, and they were also created under mayor Bill de Blasio, uh, by his commissioner, Bill Bratton. Um, so, you know, of course, this unit went back. I've reported on them extensively in 2020, and they were they have been at the center of every single major protest related kerfluffle or me or melee or whatever you want to call it since their inception. Um, they were back at it and nothing really changed. So there's a website here called Hellgate NYC. Um, it's a local news site. Hellgate is a particular section of the East River. Um, very bad currents out there but the um they wrote a great they had a great piece documenting how what happened last month was you know same old same old you know so unfortunately you know the, the the nypd have gotten have become what they are now because they've been allowed to do this because too many people are comfortable with it too many people are complacent about it um the politicians, the attorneys general, the federal prosecutors have not held them to modern policing standards. Um, and this is not even talking about the hundreds of thousands of illegal stop and frisk encounters that they made during the early late 2000s and early 2010s that put them under a consent decree that now they're basically flaunting. Civilian complaints now, I'm putting a piece out about the guard, this with The Guardian soon. Civilian complaints are at the highest levels they've been since 2012. Um, that's not a mistake. The current mayor has a very intense quality of life focus um, as a result of a panic about post-pandemic-related -pan uptick in property crime and violent crime that, if you look at it, is 
kind of well within the historical average and has now abated. Um, but yeah, the, the police department is going back to the zero tolerance, broken windows style of policing that they were under during Michael Bloomberg's mayoralty, during Rudy Giuliani's mayoralty. And um, all the blood, sweat, and tears that went into establishing some sort of check on the country's largest police department in the 2010s is now basically being rolled back and, and pushed to the side. Real quick, in, in terms of this New York uh, Post article, it says um, the NYPD used its drones 13 times to make 239 arrests during the pro-Palestinian uh, demonstrations. Yep. Now, of course, we mentioned that the New York Post uh, has its own sort of perspective that it likes to push on these the New things. York, yeah, they're the house organ for the police department. Well, that, that's what I wanted to talk about. So, uh, you know, this article, they interview a bunch of people from the NYPD that say things like, oh, you know, we're fine with peaceful protests, but, you know, there's anti-cop elements that are violent that get involved with these protests or they'll bring up, oh, there were there were throwing of bottles and fireworks and eggs at the uh, cops. Uh, how do you want to push back maybe on the uh, post sort of, I guess, pro-cop spin? Um, I mean, we're going to see if these cases are retained by the Brooklyn DA or dropped. That's the thing about a lot of these protest cases. Um, the NYPD can make whatever allegation they want um, behind the cover of anonymity, but in the end, they will have to present evidence to substantiate the charges and the DA, if they find that there's not enough evidence behind that, will drop the charges. I mean, the anti-cop stuff, you'll, they'll claim that you're anti-cop if you question their, their stop and frisk numbers. They'll claim you're anti-cop if you point out that cops are not fired for perjuring themselves in court, which by the NYPD's own patrol guide is a fireable offense. So it's like there's a very reflexive way that they have a very reflexive out for this sort of thing, um, for that sort of allegation that, oh, you're engaging in unconstitutional arrests. Oh, well, they're anti-cop elements and they're violent and so on. In the summer of 2020, they claimed that that uh, Black Lives Matter protests were protesters were building an arsenal of bricks to attack the cops with. They, and the, you know, the police commissioner included a photograph of a pile of bricks on a random street corner. It turned out this was some corner down in like Midwood or fucking Gravesend, way at the other end, ass end of Brooklyn, and it was a random construction sites, you know, cache of bricks that they were going to use that day. That's the sort of stuff that gets put out there. And, you know, there was another incident where they claimed that a cop's milkshake was spiked with a, um, with like, art, I don't know, Drano or something like that that turned out to be completely false same time frame um it, it's you know there's there's lies lies and then there's the new york post i was also gonna say you said that there's a parallel to be made uh with regards to the use of drones by nypd and then the use of drones in places like afghanistan yep. i think that's a very important point to stick on for a moment because yeah i remember right after 9 11 i even knew people in new york that were concerned oh this is going to turn into a thing where we bring war home yeah, with surveillance exactly technology. Can you, can you speak a little bit more to that? It's precisely what's happened in New York and major cities around the country. We have, as in other countries, as a result of the kind of feedback loop from the, war overseas, the wars overseas, we've reimported a lot of the surveillance technology that was used um, by the military to track you know, Al-Qaeda, to track the insurgents in Iraq, 
to track suspected terrorists um, or ISIS members in, again, the Islamic State in the Middle East in the past, in the last decade. Uh, we've brought that stuff back to the States. We have predator drones unarmed, by the way, over our borders in our northern and southern borders. There are surveillance um, cameras, network surveillance cameras in every major city. License plate readers are a common feature of police departments throughout the country. Those, by the way, were introduced, they were created in Northern Ireland. Um, they were created by the Brits in the 1970s for deployment in Northern Ireland to track IRA-related vehicles. That's also another technology that migrated itself back to police departments. Um, same thing with predictive policing technology. That was done. Crime forecasting technology, figuring out which people are potential suspects, which areas are potential hotspots for violent Minority crime. report type yeah, shit. Yeah, well, that, that stuff was developed with Pentagon grants by you know, by university professors, by defense companies. Palantir was one of them. Um, there's another now, corporate Peter shot. Till always connects back to these things in yeah, some ways. Yeah, he does. Um, there's another company called ShotSpotter that now used to be called ShotSpotter. I can't remember what they're called now, but they purchased, um, they've basically become the market leader in predictive policing technology. Um, ShotSpotter also, that's military technology too. They're All called the sound thinking back. now, I believe. Sound thinking, right. Yeah, so... These companies have their roots in the military. The technologies have their roots in the military. They come back to policing. There's kind of a, it's surveillance creep. The stuff that's initially designed for deployment against foreign enemies in a completely different legal um, setting, by the way, then migrates back to the border and then is used on marginal populations like undocumented immigrants, gang members, pedophiles, whatever may have you, and then they're used for all crimes approaches. And then sooner or later, before you know it, there's a cop drone sitting over your barbecue at Labor Day because, hey, you're a bunch of black people gathered outside on a nice summer day, drinking a beer in your backyard and, you know, roasting up some ribs. That's that's how it works. What do you think the biggest maybe misperception or misunderstanding the general public has about these topics? It won't happen to me. It's happening to you. I mean, that, that's the thing. It's not happening to me. I'm not seeing it in my life. And then sooner or later, oh, shit, you know, there's – I don't – why are all these cops in riot gear? Why are they pushing me indoors? Why am I under curfew? You know, that's what happened That's what happened to a lot of Americans during 2020. Um, during the protests in 2020, they got to see what Ferguson was like, what the first round of Black Lives Matter's demonstration was like for African Americans. They got to see what life is like in the communities where cops are out there on the street exercising their – their power to the edge of to the edge and beyond the edges of what our laws allow, and honestly, you don't know what it looks like till it's till you see it. It's kind of like a frog's boiling in water. So you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but mm -hmm. have you ever attracted the ire of the NYPD or any of these companies oh, sure. that are involved? Oh sure, yeah, I've definitely Palantir has was very upset with some reporting I did on their um, on a secretive police predictive policing program they had in New Orleans they had it running for six years without the knowledge of the city council um, until I put it out on public and then it was shortly promptly canceled uh, police other police departments you know, Oakland Los Angeles New York Chicago yeah I've attracted their ire but that's just that's the way the game is played that's how that's what it is to be an investigative reporter. That's what it is to do accountability reporting about police departments. You know, it's what's just... what's the latest news, by the way, on Palantir? What are they up to lately? Uh, they have, let's see, they have a massive contract with the National Health Service in in the UK. Um, they're 
pretty uh, embedded in the American defense infrastructure right now. They have some police contracts as well, but by and large, those have not proven to be real money makers in the same way that like working for ICE or working for the Pentagon or work or, you know, becoming the sole proprietor, the sole source contractor for the National Health Service in the UK has become. I mean, that this, so they're really moving towards that sort of approach. They're kind of expanding away from law enforcement a little bit. They've already kind of saturated that field and they're trying to get into other reaches of government. Their involvement in, uh, in the NHS and the healthcare sector has attracted a lot of um, scrutiny in Britain. I was going to say, even the name Palantir is so creepy because it's a Lord of the Rings reference, right? Everything Peter Thiel does is a Lord of the Rings reference. <laughs> He's a massive Tolkien fanboy. You know, all his companies, Anduril, Mithril, Palantir. There's probably another one. I'm not bon Tom Bombadil or whatever the fuck it is. Who knows? Yeah. Well, the Palantir in particular, that's like the... Uh, seeing stone. Yeah, the seeing stone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's creepy given what Palantir does. Um, it's also the capabilities of Palantir are frankly oversold and have been oversold for a while. But oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I mean, that there's, there's quite a bit of reporting to that effect. I mean, the NYPD effectively reverse engineered Palantir's predictive policing model uh, in-house and attracted a lot of you know, a lot of fury from, from, uh, what's his name? Carp, um, the CEO of Palantir and then their staff for that. But, you know, it's, it, it kind of showed why it kind of pulled the veil back behind the secret sauce. I mean, essentially they do charge a lot to deconflict data and to kind of break down data stovepipes. And you can do that with other platforms. They just have a particular mystique about themselves. I was also going to ask, uh, I hadn't thought to bring this up to you before, so I'm not trying to spring it on you, but, um, you know, I know that NSO group pitched Pegasus spyware oh, to yeah. NYPD. Whatever happened with that? Um, there are, so I'm almost certain that NSO group is not the only firm to have pitched NYPD. I know that NSO group pitched Chicago PD and other places around the country about their software. Um, there are organizers in the city who over the past few years have seen pretty suspicious activity on their phone. They've gotten bombarded with, um, with spear phishing links after showing up these demonstrations or getting involved in certain organizing. Um, but there's also other, there's myriad technologies that are out there um, that the police department is deploying during these demonstrations to track cell phones, to keep tabs on people. Certain people I know, certain folks I know have their phone will essentially brick during when they're around a demonstration, it'll give them, if they have an iPhone that's updated, it'll say, you know, login failed, wait a minute for authentication as if you punched in a password incorrectly um, and they haven't touched their phones. This happens whenever they're around a major protest or whenever they are near a transit hub. And I've been next to them when their phones have, have gone, have basically been immobilized and my phone is working just fine. Um, so there's a list of selectors, list of phone numbers that the department basically tries to target with um, stingrays or dirt boxes or other surveillance technology when they're in a certain area, when they're in range of the device. So we honestly don't know what their capabilities are because they've never disclosed them. But I will say that they do have dirt. They definitely have bought MZ catchers before. They definitely have bought dirt boxes, which are... Um, I believe that dirt boxes are best described as a stingray on steroids. They're typically mounted either in an American embassy or overseas or in a drone. 
and they are used to break all the encryption on all four um, data channels on your all four channels on your cell phone, voice up and down, and data up and down. So they can do full take. Um, Chicago PD has these, LAPD has these, NYPD has these, and probably a few other departments. And that's per reporting that I did back in like 2015 or 16. So yeah, there's there's just a lot of there's a big arsenal that um, police departments around the country, especially the large, well-funded ones, have access to. And that's a big reason why understanding what they have is so important and why the NYPD has fought so hard to keep their contracts with these companies uh, secret because these are all procurement stories, essentially. They're all stories that you can trace back with paper, with contract, with contractual documents, and they don't want to let this stuff out there. How do you break through to the people that I know there's going to be someone listening to this that says this sounds like conspiracy, you know, stuff. It sounds conspiratorial. And the people that just want to write it off is that how do you how would you break through to them on this issue? Just go out there and do a couple searches, man. I mean, it this the NYPD has been hiding the ball on its capabilities since when I started I started reporting on this in 2008. Um for City Limits magazine way back when. And even back then, you know, 2010, I remember getting a response to a freedom of information request that yielded like probably four to 500 pages of completely blacked out contract documents about their network of surveillance cameras downtown and in Midtown. Um, I mean, there's been a lot of reporting about the department's moss raking program. Um, Adam Goldman and Matt Apuzo wrote an entire book about the NYPD's, um, the NYPD's surveillance programs and the 2010s and, and 2000s there's just so they there's, were doing the same things that the uh, fbi were doing so yeah, they were mosque breaking and, they were okay. sending they were sending informants into mosques they got sued over this um you know there was some there was really nasty um islamophobia in the department like they mapped out basically where muslims live in the cities and sent informants into every single mosque and tried to entice people and trap them into terrorism um this is when the nsears program and the 2000s was having basically every Muslim man who was born overseas register with the government. Um, quite a few of them were later deported as a result of that. Um, like if, if people don't want to believe this shit, that's fine. But there's reams of reporting like it, that stand probably you know taller than I am, ten feet high. If you pile all the stories up one on top of the other, there's reams of reporting about this stuff for the past twenty odd years. Um, there's a very solid paper trail about it and. You know why this stuff doesn't get referenced every single time you write about the police department surveillance capability. Well, that those are those are great questions to ask the editors at the Daily News and the New York Times, the New York Post. And you know, I remember writing a story about the department's overseas. I'll give you an anecdote. I remember writing a story about the department's overseas um, deployment of detectives in 2018. This was all stuff that had been well reported in the public. Um, they had come under fire by the FBI for getting in the way of the feds when they were liaising with, you know, foreign officials after the terrorist attacks in 2005 and in, in London, and I believe in Madrid as well. And, you know, you mentioned this in a story that the NYPD puts it, was trying to seed about, you know, a detective making, helping make an arrest in Thailand for a you know, murder suspect. And after the story ran, it was all solid. It was firmed up. I got a call from this uh, flack over the police department and basically got the guy, you know, giving me both barrels down the phone. This isn't what we agreed on. Da, 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 da. 
And he went and called my editor and put pressure on the paper. They didn't change the story, but this is the sort of thing that happens if you do butt heads with the police department. They will go over your head. They'll try and pull. They'll try and, you know, go after the editors and go after your credibility to, to question them. And, you know, that's kind of the way the game is played. I was also going to ask you about, uh, I know you've done some reporting on the Proud Boys and these sort of different far-right groups. Uh, can you talk about the relationship between far-right groups and the police? Because I think it's a very scary time right now, especially for, well, for everyone, but also for Arab Americans that I know. You know, yeah. I just I just spoke to um, a major uh, anti-Arab American discrimination group. They had to cancel the interview because they got bomb threats. So care? this is a very dangerous time. What's that? Was that CARE? Yes, it was the Council on American-Islamic Relations. Yeah, no, yeah. so... There is <clears throat> police departments throughout the country are riddled with far right sympathizers and if if not um, over um, overtly far right folks. There was a police detective in New York City, Sal Greco, who basically served as Roger Stone's bodyguard for quite some time until really? he was yeah, he was drummed out of the department um, after the Daily News aired him out after January six. There were a number of New York City cops whose names popped up on that Oath Keeper list. Um, there are dozens of cops in Chicago whose names are on that list, many of whom haven't been disciplined, per some really good reporting in the Sun-Times. Let's see, six cops from Seattle PD were at January 6th um, alone from Seattle. There were There's just very broad penetration of groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys in the law enforcement apparatus. Not only that, they're also sympathizers too with these ideologies. And part of the what you're going to see with Arab Americans is that there is, despite the involvement of more, um, I guess, Americans of Middle Eastern background or South Asian background or Muslim background, however you put it, in law enforcement now, um, the profession still has a hard right bent. There's still a lot of Islamophobia latent in the profession that is a carryover from the September 11th attacks. And, um, you know, the, at the cultural atmosphere fostered in the country after that, and that also exists and is quite rampant in our military. And, uh, yeah, there are, there is a way in which the Middle Eastern community in the United States is viewed as guilty until proven innocent. Um, the attitude of many cops, I'll just put it to you like this. There's a San Francisco cop, um, a mission for, I think it was San maybe mission district or another district, um, Arab American, he has sued the department um, because his colleagues used to scrawl the ISIS flag on his locker and uh, make jokes about there being a bomb within his um, within his belongings. And that's just that's just one example of this stuff. There's um, and the way in which the attacks that have been perpetrated on Arab Americans have kind of been snowed under. Um, by you know the the fears that some in the Jewish community that have as a result of um, the October seventh assault by by Hamas on Israel um, and the murders that were committed during that act. I mean, there are some communities there. There's some. There's large parts of the um, the Jewish community in the U.S. Um, not all. There are many anti-Zionist Jews, but the factions that are more closely allied with the Israel lobby, with APAC and kind of more Zionist groups, have been have voiced very strident fears about their safety and have gone out of their way to silence any sort of critics. But the same level of care and 
um, concern is not being directed towards Muslim Americans and Arab Americans, um, even though like we had a case where some far right nut who was kind of mainlining talks radio uh, murdered a seven year old boy in Chicago because he was of an Arab background. Um, in that respect, the current atmosphere looks sounds very much like Sept it did after September 11th. With regards to far-right influence in police departments, mm -hmm. I know a lot of people that will say that this is like a newer phenomena or they'll tie it to the alt-right. Well, I was going to say, you know, I, I'm not going to necessarily recommend this book because I don't agree with all its um, conclusions. But I remember uh, Stephen Singular had a really interesting book on Mark Furman called Legacy of Deception. Yeah, uh, so we actually, you know, even have to go into that. The book that I wrote on the Oakland Police Department with, with Darwin Bond Graham, we actually trace out the involvement, um, the kind of intermeshing of the John Birch Society, the KKK. I was going to say, it goes back decades yeah, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, with the Hells Angels and their reactionary, you know, nihilistic politics, they were quite well woven into the Oakland Police Department. And that's just one small, that's one mid-sized city on the West Coast let alone similar, I mean, the similar, first off, the, let's just look at California, right? The entire KKK in California in the 1920s, the second Klan, which was mostly directed against Jews, Catholics, anybody who wasn't a white Protestant, because at that point there weren't Chinese, because there weren't that many African-Americans on the West Coast in the early 20th century. Um, the Klan's leaders in California were law enforcement, sheriffs, DAs, police chiefs, this was well-known, right? It's, there's ample, ample, ample histories written about this stuff, and it's reflected around the country. So it's a right-wing profession, by and large. Not everybody in it is right-wing, but, right but the culture is reactionary. Um, and barring outside intervention, it will produce things like a you know decorated detective serving as Roger Stone's bodyguard on January 6th. Um, that's the sort of thing that will just creep out of it you know dozens of chicago cops will sign oath keeper will pay dues to the oath keepers and offer to recruit within the police department that's the sort of thing that happens um and there are myriad examples that i could probably waste like two or three hours talking about so switching focus here there was a new york focus article and for people that don't know new york focus it's a non-profit publication that tries to cover uh you know who runs new york yeah. as the slogan goes uh no they're out of albany they're a newer organization and they're doing they're kind of picking up the slack that um, traditional news organizations have left in um, new york state government so for those not familiar with new york state um powers power and media and population are concentrated at the southern end um, around the city in the suburbs of Long Island and Westchester as well. Um, even though power is wielded in Albany upstate where there is a far thinner population um, and almost no media presence. So they're doing really important work. So they have an article by Chris Gilardi and Julia Rock from October 19th, uh, 2023. New York's ties to Israel bring the Gaza war home. I know you have your own thoughts on this, and you've done some reporting connected to this, but basically this expose gets into the ways in which, uh, you know, New York State has some connections to the occupation in the West Bank. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of LLCs, uh, limited liability corporations. New York has very um, opaque limited li liability corporation laws, which people are trying to change. There's a bill in front of the governor right now that would um, – open them up, but basically you can shield your assets and your, um, 
your corporation, kind of who you are and what you're doing behind and a couple of different shells of LLCs. Um, there are numerous drug traffickers, um, organized crime figures that have done this. Uh, it's quite well known. Um, there are also a lot of nonprofits in the state that, so there are LLCs that tie back to settlements. And then there are a lot of nonprofits in New York state, both in the city and around it, that not only fund settlements, but essentially channel money back to them. Um, so Chris and Julia did an excellent job documenting these links. Um, New York state has a very large proportionally has a very large Jewish population. Um, and some portions of that do have connections to Israel. Um, there are quite a few ultra Orthodox communities in New York city and around New York city that have established links to settlements, um, illegal settlements in the West bank. And some of them, um, you can actually see the money flowing in different areas. Um, I will talk about one particular example I had in 2018. So there was a story that broke um, a group of officers, NYPD officers, including a former detective, Ludwig Paz, were running a prostitution ring in the city that essentially had police protection. Um, this ring had locations, had set up brothels in apartments, I believe, let's see, in Gowanus, Ridgewood, um, Jackson Heights, Queens, Corona, Queens. Uh, I want to say a little bit further out. They were in East New York. They were just scattered throughout the city. But here's the tie. They're, all these buildings were owned by a particular landlord, right? The landlord was an Orthodox man. His, money, his net worth, I looked at his property worth and so on, and then looked at the different LLCs that he was using the registered agent, you could trace certain properties throughout the city back to this one landlord, right? He was the front man and lived in a house that maybe cost like $300,000, maybe that in, um, in Midwood, right north of Bay Ridge. Um, he was a front man for about $60 million worth of property in four boroughs. Uh, those weren't assets that he had. And then there were ties back to an ambulance corporation between his LLCs and an ambulance company in a volunteer ambulance company in um, a settlement in Easter in the West bank. So in that way you could, this guy by all ends for all ends and purposes looked like he was the front man for a lot of money. Like he was admit that he was basically handling money to invest in property and channeling that money back in out of the U S through these LLCs. Um, there are other stories that have cropped up about people who wield influence in the city, having ties to settlements uh, about different congregations in the city, um, funding occupations. There's a pretty famous video of a, I believe it's in East Jerusalem of a Palestinian family confronting an Israeli settler. Maybe it's in the West. Bank. I can't remember. It's, it's definitely a, a Israeli man who's from long Island is telling this Palestinian family. Yeah. He's long Island. Native, is telling this family, don't blame me. If I don't take your house, somebody else will take it. It's not my fault. So that this is the sort of thing that like there's a, there's a good amount of, of back and forth between New York State and Israel in a way that there really isn't with other states in the United in the, in the U.S. And that directly impacts the tone of politics here towards Israel and the way the stand the unabashedly pro-Israel stances that Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, and Kathy Hochul, the governor, have made towards Israel. Both of them have visited Israel in the past three months, by the way. 
Adams's trip was paid for by the um, by UJA. Um, UJA Federation is a major. Um, it's basically an Israel lobby component. Um, it's a nonprofit that is a big um, Zionist booster organization. Kathy Hochul's trip was going to be paid for by UJA as well, and then she caught some flack over it because she went after October seventh and after the um, the Israeli retaliation for the uh, the massacre had started. And um, there are good reasons why Chris and Julia's reporting, um, as good as it was, they were only featured on one media interview. They only got an interview on a public radio station in the Catskills upstate, you know, a little bit south of Albany. Why didn't they get on WNYC? Well, UJA Federation is a major sponsor of New York Public Radio, the NPR station here. Their name is read out during the newscast. If they got, I guarantee you, if Chris and Julia went on WNYC, UJA would pull their sponsorship because that's who they're talking about. That's part of the lobby here that goes after a group of professors at Columbia who signed a letter condemning, you know, condemning the Israeli response to the Hamas attack and condemning the, the carpet bombing of Gaza that's currently going on, condemning the attacks that are happening in the West Bank where settlers are chasing Palestinians out of their home. They're, they're essentially, look, what's happening, the reaction by the current far-right Israeli government is a second Nakba. They are going to force as many Palestinians out of Gaza as possible. The settlers are, have been armed by the Israeli military and they're, for, they're illegally seizing land in the West Bank and terrorizing villages up there. The initial, in, the initial instance on October 7th was a horrible thing. What's happening now is even worse. It's 10 times worse. The numbers show it. The casualties actually are 10 times higher than the Israeli casualties on the first day. And... Well, Hamas you know, doesn't run the West Bank either. No, they don't. That, that's, that's the Palestinian that Authority. Don't understand. Yeah. yeah. Hamas don't, they don't run the West Bank. Hamas have been kept in power for a long time by the current government, by, Net, by Netanyahu. The United States promoted them quite often um, in the 2000s as a counterweight to the Palestinian Authority. And there's blowback to that, the same way that the US funded Al Qaeda and the, funded, um, excuse me, the Mujahideen in the 1980s in Afghanistan. By the 1990s, Osama bin Laden had decided that you know the great Satan was no longer that who had armed him all those years was uh, now ripe for the picking. So it's yet more blowback um, on some really kind of maniacal policies that the government of Israel has pursued instead of looking for a true two-state or one-state solution where everyone can live in peace. Just a, a few things I wanted to say there. Um, so for people that don't know, that Long Island native uh, was. Jacob Fauci. And I mean, the video of that is absolutely insane. You have this woman crying saying, Jacob, you're, sh you're stealing my home, my house. And he says, if I don't steal it, someone else is going to steal it. Just It's not it. my fault. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. This um, NY Focus article talks about he's recruited by a firm called um, Nahalet Shamoon International, uh, which is directed by Seymour Braun. Uh, this Manhattan-based lawyer. So there's all these connections. And it's interesting. You mentioned the Israel lobby. I think sometimes people get confused when we talk about Israel lobbying efforts because they'll think it's like one lobby. Like it's everything is APAC, but it's really sort of this network of different, what I would call pro-Israel affinity groups. Yeah, I mean, there, there's, there are quite a few of these things. Um, I haven't mapped them out. This is not typically an area that I focus on. Um, I know it exists. It's kind of a, it's an unfortunate fact of life in New York state that they have an outsized influence in Albany. Um, 
I will say that one of the ways in which this does come out, the kind of reflexive pushback towards any critique of you know, pro-Israel groups or, or, or ultra-Orthodox groups has been in our school systems. So um, Orthodox or religious schools get a, I believe they get certain amounts of money from the state to fund the education of children. They have been dinged repeatedly um, for not providing any sort of modern education. The kids who go that, to these schools oftentimes can't write or they can't read sufficiently in English. They have no skills for the modern world. They've basically given been given religious education and only religious education. Um, but any attempts to kind of roll this stuff back and ding down and ding these schools is met with cries of anti-Semitism. And quite often they can get groups from the greater Israel lobby to kind of lobby up, to click up with them and lobby. Um, it's also worth pointing out that Orthodox, the many of the Zionist groups in New York state are quite affiliated with the right wing. Um, Trump won Orthodox neighborhoods very handily, might I add. Um, his anti-Muslim politics, the Muslim ban was very popular amongst them, um, play well in those demographics. Real quick here, with regards to the West Bank, I think what people really need to understand, and I know this is outside of the the topic of, of New York necessarily, but... Yeah, but the, here's the thing. Surveillance technology, Israeli surveillance technology is very heavily used by the NYPD. Mayor Adams, when he went to Israel, it was basically to go and take a tour of all the surveillance tools that the Israeli police and Shin Bet used. He was like, oh, wow, we're going to use these here. So there are direct connections between what happens in American cities and the sort of stuff that's pioneered and developed in Israel under a very different legal circumstance. So it may seem far afield, but if you work on criminal justice like I do, and if you work on surveillance and issues of surveillance and extremism, you do see the overlap with the Israeli regime. So it's worth pointing out that 9-11 essentially saved Israel's reputation. Um, before 9-11, the Israel, the Israel was essentially on the verge of being a pariah state for the way in which they rolled back settlement, they pushed settlements and kind of rolled back the, uh, the Oslo Accords. After September 11th, the Israeli government essentially made a very aggressive push, and many academics have written about this. Um, Rashid Halidi is one of them. Have made it, they made a very aggressive push to market their expertise in policing terrorism and in, de- in, you know, dealing in counterterrorism and policing Muslim populations, extremism, stuff like that, Muslim extremism to Western police forces. They're cropped up this junket sponsored by Israel lobby, Israel lobby organizations of police executives who, and other officers, you know, in, in certain specialized positions who'd be taken to Israel every single year on a junket and basically run through the ropes of how policing is done Israeli style. This has gone on for decades, 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 decades. There's been quite a lot of reporting about it. Um, It has shown up in the militarized fashion in which American law enforcement responded to Ferguson. There was a lot of reporting about the ties between the Israeli security services and the American American policing apparatus. After that round of the Black Lives Matter demonstration, it cropped up again in 2020. Certain contractors like Elbit are getting attacked in cities like Boston and overseas in the UK. Um, is there a major Israeli defense and policing contractor? The two regimes, the security regimes, are quite closely intermeshed, and they take cues from one another. They share technology. They share tactics. Um, they train, and frankly, there's also you know there's a side of it, a political side that 
funds these trips and funds these this exchange of knowledge. And those same actors are the people who are now calling for people, for professors and lawyers and, de and dentists um, to be fired because they're expressing a desire for a ceasefire. They're, they could, because they're, they oppose the, um, the, you know, the war crimes that are being committed in response to October 7th. And that is something that we really kind of have to pull apart. And it's a very difficult topic to talk about for reporters to go at in a balanced fashion, because even if you interview anti-Zionist Jews, right? Even if you interview Jew American Jews who are completely opposed to Israel, the counter to them is going to be that's anti-Semitism. Anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. The Anti-Defamation League is now claiming that anti-Zionism is equivalent to white supremacy. That is their official line. Their chapters have pushed it. It's being echoed by, of course, far-right Republicans. This is now in the playbook. BLM is terrorism. B boycott, divestment, sanction is terrorism. Anti-Zionism is terrorism. They're conflating all these things, and they're merging them together into their big battle against wokeism. It's a big right-wing push, and I guarantee you, you're going to see BD you're going to see um, anti-Zionist protesters criminalized in a number of, uh, in a number of these states. I think you were going to say BDS boycott, BDS. divestment, yeah, sanction. boycott, divestment, sanction. Yeah, you're going to see. Well, no, no, you're just going to see like pro-Palestinian or pro-ceasefire demonstrations criminalized as terrorism um, in certain states in the U.S., which have very reactionary anti-protest laws in a similar manner to what the Brits have done. The Home Secretary in the United Kingdom, Suella Braverman, has called pro-Palestinian marches hate marches. That's the highest law enforcement officer in Britain. I guarantee you you're going to see a right-wing reaction to some of these marches in states like, I don't know, let's throw a couple out there, Tennessee, Texas, maybe Louisiana, who knows? What I was going to say about the situation in the West Bank, and I, I think people really need to understand this, is that you have these really odious figures in Israel like Itamar Ben-Giver, uh, who I think is no longer part of the emergency government, but he's buying up arms now and giving them to settlers, including his sort of uh, thuggish pet project, the Hilltop Youth, who are basically just these juvenile delinquents that he's giving weapons to them mm -hmm. uh, to you know, basically just rampage in these illegal settlements and, and kick Palestinians out. I mean, I think people really have to understand that the West Bank is like its own situation, uh, you know, and Gaza is also its own. I, I think people uh, don't always, they're not noticing what's happening in the West Bank because they're so focused on Gaza. Yep. Not that they shouldn't be, but you know, you know, well, you know what I mean? It's, it's incredibly, look, th these are very, um, I mean, they're not, it's not Byzantium, but these are very Byzantine politics. Middle Eastern politics are incredibly thorny. I'm, my family, my, my, half my family's Turkish. I have roots in the region. Even to us, this stuff is, it's headache inducing. Our own country's politics are headache inducing, let alone what happens in Lebanon, Syria, Israel, these countries that were really, you know, they were split apart by the post-World One compromises between the European powers and then new, new nation states were created out of them. Syria is not, <laughs> Syria, Jordan, uh, you know, Lebanon, Israel, these weren't, these weren't states beforehand. These are all post-imperial creations in the same way that, frankly, Israel is an imperial creation. It's the con it's, Israel is the product of agreements between Zionists and the British occupation government to give the Jews a homeland in the Middle East. Um, they got realized after the Second World War. And so what you're dealing with is the knock-on of European imperialism plus Western Zionism plus you know the kind of 
general powerlessness that a lot of the Arabs in this region, that the Arabs in Palestine have had, I don't remember the last time they've ruled them over themselves, maybe in maybe 1500 years ago, something like that, you know, because before that they were under Ottoman rule, before that they were under Crusader rule, before that they were under, I don't know, Safavid rule. I'm, I get, it all gets blurry back then and I can't call up 2000 years of history in a second, but, um, you know, it, so paying attention to like, what's the West Bank? What's Israel? What, but isn't the West Bank Palestinian? Why are there Israeli settlements within 400 yards of a Palestinian village? What's going on there? Why are there separate roads? Why does it take two hours for an Israeli, for a Palestinian to go what it takes an Israeli 15 minutes to go in a car? Like, how does this work? It, it makes no sense to outsiders. And I guess it makes, it has its own perverse logic if you're used to it or you live there. So. No, it's just important for me to point it out because, like I said, and as you said, you know, Hamas isn't running the West Bank. What did they do to deserve this? You know, and people do need to recognize that. Um, You mentioned uh, Donald Trump earlier. I think it's very interesting that you have these, I I would say, pro-Netanyahu Zionists like Morton Klein of the Mm -hmm. Zionist Organization of America, who, you know, he will bend over backwards to defend Donald Trump. He'll say, oh, mm-hmm. Donald isn't an anti-Semite. He said that in an interview uh, with, I believe it was the New Yorker less than a year ago. Can you talk a little bit about the connections between these sort of uh, pro-Israel groups and Donald Trump? Well, um, Trump may not, you know, he has his own antipathy towards Jews, um, but he also loathes Muslims. And I think that the broader MAGA movement um, does tie over a lot with Christian nationalism, which we know Trump is very much in favor of, even though he's nowhere near a Christian. Um, I think that the Christian and the Christian nationalist movement and evangelical Christianity in particular have longstanding, um, you know, love for Israel, love for that project. Um, they see it as one of their obligations to establish, you know, firm Judeo-Christian control over the Holy Land, um, which is, you know, Jerusalem even though it's one of the most holiest sites in Islam. Um, and the current Israeli government, by the way, the far-right um, nas- far right Jewish power nationalists in charge of Israel right now, their supporters have, by the way, attacked Christians in Christian Arabs and Christian Armenians in Jerusalem and other cities. Um, they've gone after them as well as, as, as Muslim Arabs. Well, we so- just saw the bombing of an old... Palestinian Christian church in Gaza. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's it to them. It's as if they're not Jews that, that they're not really worth it. Um, so Trump's brand of re- Trump, the MAGA movement's brand of reactionary nationalism. Well, it may seem like, oh yeah, they're they're not in favor of Jews. Well, there are components of that coalition that are very pro-Israel, and the Israel lobby. Um, got behind Trump quite heavily. Sheldon Adelson, who's a massive donor to APAC and the Israel lobby components, um, he was unabashedly pro-Trump and other folks in that in that world are. I mean, I'm not the, again, this is not like the, the world that I pay attention to on the far right um, is really like the world of trigger pullers. I'm not interested, that interested in the money. I, I know it to a certain degree, but the stuff that I'm, that I work on typically in the far right is the groups and the people that are left of boom, like the, the future McVeigh's and Terrance and the Krugis's. So that's, that's kind of where I'm at on that respect. But before we close out, um, I just had one or two more things, I guess you you sort of alluded to it there, but when we're talking about these figures uh, from the Israeli government, uh, like uh, Bezalel Smotrich, 
um, of the Religious Zionist Party or it's Ben Giver of mm-hmm. the uh, I believe it's just called the Jewish Power Party. That's right. I, I think it would be fair to say that. And I know this is a weird issue for people. But these are supremacist ideologues. Yeah. You know, I, I know they're ethno-nationalists. They're totally ethno-nationalists. It's hard to talk about that, though, because people immediately think you're talking some David Duke type thing. And that's not really what we're talking about at all. You know, no, I mean, look, the United Nations, uh, the Amnesty International has branded Israel as an apartheid state. Um, former Israeli generals, retired Israeli generals have come out and said what the current state in Israel is far more oppressive than what the South Africans, than what black South Africans endured under apartheid in South Africa. That's not under debate. The current project, government project in Israel, and left-wing Jews will tell you this too, left-wing Israelis will tell you this as well. The current people in power don't want Arabs in the country. They want them in the sea. October 7th is going to be their excuse to do it. This, There will be... in. Barring major international intervention, we are going to see a second Nakba. And if that happens, I, I'm very nervous for the prospects of a broader regional conflict. I don't believe Hezbollah will, Hezbollah will sit by. I don't believe Jordan, of all people, will sit by. And Jordan's a major American ally. It's a huge, um, basically, it's like a forward operating base for the CIA and, and special forces. Um, I don't expect Iran to sit by if that happens. It would be suicidal for Israel. But, you know, that's a nuclear armed state. Um, they're going to do what they feel like they can do and they feel like they're unable to do it. Um, it is a very chilling prospect. Like th- this could be the the trigger for broader regional war if cooler heads don't prevail. And um, part of the reason why Israel is able to go as far as they are is that they have American backing. They receive what a billion dollars of America, a billion, $2 billion of American tax money. You're in my tax money every single year in foreign aid. Their military systems are overwhelmingly American. Um, the jets they fly are American jets. They could not, they, you know, if the U.S. government wanted to, they could break them tomorrow. Um, but by and large, there's no pushback from the American security state towards the Israeli, towards the IDF's actions, you know. And um, like this is also, it's a domestic security concern for us too because it's going to cause, it has caused a tumult in American cities. And frankly, it has drastically weakened Biden, Biden's uh, standing in a battleground state. He will lose Michigan without Arab American support. And um, they have indicated that they will vote with it. They'll you know vote with their feet. They will not vote for him this time. Yeah, and I, I think Democrats are banking on this idea that, oh, well, Arab voters, Arab American voters will just forget about this come next year. I don't think that's necessarily the case. No. No, I don't think I don't think Arab American voters will forget that anytime soon. And yeah, the choices between him and Trump, well, they say, look, you know, what's the difference for us? What's the difference for us? The thing I wanted to close out on was um, I have a lot of friends now, including uh, Jewish friends that are very worried about the chilling of free speech. Uh, so very pro-Palestinian Jewish friends that are saying, you That's know, right. they're going to go quiet now over this because they're afraid uh, of losing they're jobs. Tarred. They're tarred as, as they're tarred as anti-Semites. They're tarred, they're tarred as self-hating Jews. Anti-Zionist Jews are to me some of the bravest people in this country because the amount of blowback they face, professional blowback, personal blowback, you know, familial quabbles and, and blowback they might face from their own relatives for speaking out about the situation is far greater than it's what it is to, to you know to a goy like me. 
Um, so they really, you know, they are targeted in a way that other critics of Israel are not. Um, because Israel knows that it must maintain a positive public image in the United States and support in the United States in order to continue as a state in its current form, in its current apartheid form. Well, what I was going to say is I, I'm of two minds on all this because I hear a lot of people saying, you know, this is uh, we're going to see apocalyptic levels of criminalization of speech, uh, particularly pro-Palestinian uh, speech. Um, and then on the other hand, though, I, I understand that concern, but I also think we're in a different world now in the sense of you have groups like Palestine Legal, you have groups like CARE. Yep. I do think there are more Palestinian lawyers. Uh, we have people like Rashida Tlaib yep. in Congress. Uh, how bad do you think things are going to get? Do you think there's any silver linings? What's your general take on the free speech issue? I, First off, I believe that if we had a different president in charge, if we had the past regime in charge, there would be attempts to, there would be federal attempts to lock people up for this sort of thing. Um, there would be attempts to criminalize speech by the Department of Justice. Um, I think that we're in a very different world now. I also think that the public opinion in the United States has shifted. Um, the Israel lobby wields a lot of power and they have a lot of influence in the US, but at the same time, there is a massive, massive generational gap there's a massive, excuse me, generational difference in terms of how younger Americans and Americans of color view that conflict versus older Americans. And younger Americans, particularly people who were radicalized during the Trump years and on, are, have a living memory of the Muslim ban, remember the Black Lives Matter protests, also remember the support that Netanyahu gave to Trump and the opposition that he vocally made towards Obama. He spoke in, I believe it was the... Uh, I believe it was the House of Representatives. He got on the floor and criticized Obama, which is unheard of for a foreign head of state to do that. Um, that's not, those are memories that live in, that live on today in the perception of the conflict. And I think that the marches and the protests and the way that you're seeing people continually push back against, um, you know, the, the Israel lobby's narrative is really interesting. Uh, I don't think Tlaib is going to lose her seat over this. There's going to be attempt. There will be attempts to primary uh, left-wing Democrats. There's been quite a bit of reporting about that. Uh, Jamal Bowman has a level of risk because he's in Westchester, which has a lot of, you know, has a decent um, Westchester County in New York, wealthy suburban county right north of the city, does have a sizable Zionist component up there as well. Um, notice I'm saying not Zionist, not Jewish, because the Jewish community is not monolithic in this conflict. And that's something that I has really, you know, kind of broken my brain to watch the attempts to conflate one ethnicity with one opinion. Right. And that's just something that I, and you know, my friends are, I don't, I have a lot of Jewish friends. They're anti-Zionist. I don't know one that frankly is open in their support of Israel or has been supportive of Israel in its current state. Um, I mean, there's even, I, not to interrupt you, but there's even people that I would say, I, I've known Jewish people that wouldn't describe themselves as anti-Zionist, but they'll tell me they're non-Zionist. Like it's, yeah. it's, they just don't care. It's not an issue to them. Well, it, this, this is the thing. What these, what programs like Birthright do, what program, similar pro Israel lobby programs do, is they try and merge, they try and make certain that you identify with the state of Israel as a, as a Jew, as an American Jew, as a British Jew, as a French Jew, you also have this second loyalty, right? 
I can't think of any other country in the world that tries to put that push, that idea that your ethnicity is married to certain religion. And that also means that you're loyal to another state. And that is, you know, I just don't envy people who are put in that situation um, by virtue of their birth, by virtue of who their parents are, by what religion their parents are, their family is. Um, it must be an impossible bind. And I, I just can't imagine what's out there for them. But either way, um, the broader point that I think people should take away from, from this conversation is that the American security apparatus, the, whether it, we're talking about the NYPD or Chicago PD or the FBI or the Department of Justice, the Department of Homeland Security, they're very tightly interwoven with the Israeli apparatus. That's a direct result of 9-11, direct knock-on from there. And the ways in which our own internal surveillance state, our own internal version of Big Brother has metastasized and grown is a direct result of cross-pollination with that country's security apparatus over the past 20 years. I was just going to say real quick, in terms of the conversation having changed a lot, the, the broader conversation about yeah. Palestine, you know, I was watching uh, PBS NewsHour recently, and I was surprised they had, um, <laughs> well, they had Hanan Ashrawi on, and I've talked to Hanan before. She was um, involved with education at the PLO, That's right. and she was talking about the Nakba. And I don't remember 10 years ago, you know, people going on PBS News getting to talk about the Nakba. So I do think something has changed. I guess what's well, scary not news right hour, they might go on Charlie Rose. Right, right, right. But, um, you know, I'm reading this article by a uh, 972 magazine mm -hmm. uh, about intelligence ministry. What's that? It's another fantastic magazine. Oh, yeah. Incredible magazine. But they, they're talking about this intelligence ministry document that basically is saying, calling for a population transfer to the Sinai with, yep. with uh, the Gazans. I mean, this is like second Nakba talk. I'm curious, if that is the end game, uh, do you think Israel will be able to pull that off? Because I'm not actually assured. That would be a, that, if, if that's their end game, it, there will be a wider, there will, I guarantee you, there will be a wider regional war. That is, that is a non-starter no matter how close saudi arabia wants to get to israel that is a non-starter there will be massive social unrest not just in israel but throughout the middle east if that happens well let's uh wrap it up on that note how can my listeners keep up with your work ali and uh thank you again for coming on and spending you know like an hour and a half with me here oh whatever so. it's i'm always i'm always um Looking forward to these conversations when you invite me on. So if you want to follow my work, um, I do post my material on both uh, Twitter, I don't call it the other name, um, and Blue Sky uh, under the handle A Winston, A-W-I-N-S-T-O-N. I am the, as JG mentioned, I'm the co-author of The Riders Come Out at Night, a history of the Oakland Police Department and an examination of the question of whether or not police departments can be reformed or not. Um, American police departments, that is. Uh, that's with Darwin Von Graham. That's out there um, by Atria Books. The paperback comes out in March, by the way, for anybody who's interested. We also just got longlisted for the Carnegie Medal for nonfiction. So it's been well-received. Um, I write for publications such as, oh, let's see, The Guardian, British Broadcasting Corporation, Vanity Fair, Rolling Stone, um, New York Magazine, a ton of other places. So um, I should put together a website. I've just been lazy about it and <laughs> busy working. So that's where you can find me. I'm on 
mostly on the socials if you want to keep up with the work and my contact information is there real, real quick and I'm, I'm sorry i didn't mention it before but I, I did want you to um i did want to ask you this because like i said i have a lot of people that are saying you know i, I can't speak out about palestine right now yeah. what do you want to say to people that think that like they're going to lose everything if they speak out on this topic well um I think that people have a moral imperative, especially as Americans, to do this. Um, number one, your tax money is funding it. So every time you pay income taxes or pay sales tax, you're essentially funding the current status quo, whether you like it or not. Um, nothing's going to change unless you push for it. And number two, you have a First Amendment right to do so. You have a right to hold whatever opinion you want. You have a right to voice it in whatever way you, put, you feel on this topic. And... Um, if there is an attempt to come for your job or come for your occupation or come for your livelihood, get a lawyer, counter sue. People like people will back I down. I was going to say there's been some people victories. Will back down. Yeah. People there, there have been victories. People will back down. And if you stay, you know, what happens in these situations is they count on you to be intimidated and not speak up. Don't let that happen. You have legal protections. There are ways in which you can fire, fire for, discrimination, workplace discrimination for your own political opinion. That is frankly, you know, a case that I'm not a lawyer, but there are definitely lawyers out there who will test that out. Um, well, th there's <clears throat> been cases in the past year of uh, anti-BDS uh, uh, legislation getting shot down. That's right. <laughs> so, no, I mean, I think that, I think the, I think the, the public attitude has changed. And frankly, um, this is a situation. America is one of the few countries in the world. It might be the only country in the world that can actually push this conflict towards a ceasefire faster than others um, and avoid a broader regional conflagration, which would be horrendous and catastrophic. Um, so if you have an opinion on this, don't be silent. This is not the time. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ollie Winston. And as always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.
I'm not a 